Okay, when you've uh, greeted everyone in the church, you may sit down. But until then, no, I'm just kidding. Go ahead, have a seat, and we'll get started with our study through Scripture. Tonight we're going to be in 1 John in chapter 1. Last week we looked at an overview of the book of 1 John. And we found out that 1 John is all about testing your spiritual pulse, or checking your spiritual pulse. How can we know as believers whether we are spiritually alive? Can we know? We saw last week that John said, yes, it is clear. It is evident in your life whether or not you are a believer based on what you do, based on what you believe, based on what you do, and based on how you love other people. And so today we're going to, we're going to begin in verses 1 through 4 and find out the first section that John has to teach us about checking our spiritual pulse. How can we know that we have a right standing before God? Let's read beginning in verse 1 of chapter 1. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and our hands have touched concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write, that your joy, that our joy, may be made complete. Okay, I said the book was broken down into three major sections. The first section is a test of fellowship. And that begins in chapter 1 and verse 1 and goes through chapter 2 and verse 17. And so that's where we will begin, that first section, the test of fellowship. How can we know that we know Him? How can we know that we are a believer? It should not be something that we constantly struggle with, John says. He says, it's very simple. Let me show you how to do it. So the first way in which we can know is we need to check our doctrine. We need to see what we understand. If we want to have a right standing before God, if we want to know that we have a right standing before God, we have to have a right understanding about His truth. And then we'll find out later in, in John's epistle also that not only do you have to have a right understanding, but you have to have a proper walk. That's how you can know whether or not you, you know him. Now, notice I did not say that you need a proper walk in order to be saved. What we're checking is our spiritual pulse, whether or not we are alive, not whether or not we can become alive. Because obviously the scriptures are clear that we do not need any works in order to be saved. All we need is the shed blood of Jesus Christ put on our account, wiping away our sin and giving us eternal life. But in order to check our pulse, we do need to have a proper walk. Today, though, we're, we're going to look at a proper doctrine, or proper understanding. And the first way that we check our spiritual pulse is through this doctrine. And John asks the question and answers this question, What do I believe about the gospel? Do you want to know whether you are spiritually alive? Ask yourself this question, What do I believe about the gospel? That's the question that John is going to answer for us today. And we are going to find that because a right understanding of the gospel results in eternal life, we must 
share it with others. So first we're going to look at the doctrine itself, what we have to believe in in order to be saved. Then we're going to see that that, that doctrine is going to bring, or that truth is going to bring eternal life. And then finally we're going to see what happens when we receive eternal life. When we truly understand what that means for us, it should result in sharing it with others. So the first thing, the, the way in which I wanted to address this passage is by asking three questions. First, what is this gospel that John is talking about? What is it? Secondly, what does it result in? And I already said eternal life. And then thirdly, what do we do with it? And I said we share it. Okay, so the first question is what is it? What is this gospel? John gives it to us in, in chapter 1 and verse 1. What was from the beginning, what we have heard and what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. He breaks it down into three main sections. First, who he is. Who is Jesus Christ? Who is this man? That is one of the essential things we have to know in order to understand and believe the gospel. Who he is. That's the first thing. Secondly, he says, we have to understand what he said or what he did. What did he do? What did he offer to us? And then thirdly, what does he demand? What does he demand of us? That is the, the gospel summed up in three main points. Who he is, what he did, and what he demands of us. First, who he is. He says that, that what was from the beginning. Okay, Why do I say that this is referring to Jesus Christ in the gospel? Because the only time we have listed in this passage the the name Jesus Christ is at the end of verse 3. So why do I say we're talking about Jesus Christ? Well, as we read this morning from John chapter 1, John began his epistle also, the, the gospel of John, with in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In chapter 1 and verse 14 he says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Who is this Word that became flesh and dwelt among us? Who was it that was in the beginning and was with God? He can't be talking about God the Father because he said he is with God. So I think we are clear when we look at the Gospels that he's talking about God the Son, Jesus Christ. And so he starts out his epistle here to, uh, to the churches in Asia Minor in verse 1. What was from the beginning? Jesus Christ. So what is it that we have to understand about Jesus Christ in order to be saved? We're answering the question today. Remember, what do I believe about the gospel? We have to understand that Jesus Christ is eternal. That he is eternal. That he is God. What was from the beginning. He has always been there. Right? He had no beginning. Why? Because he is God. And that is an essential truth that we must believe in order to be saved. Jesus makes it very clear throughout the scriptures that if you do not accept me, you do not accept the Father. And so we must believe that Jesus Christ is God. That he is eternal. Jesus had eternal fellowship with God. And so in verse 2 we see that this life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. This is referring to Jesus Christ. 
And not only is he eternal, but he is also human. He came to us in human flesh. Now, he did not he was not human from eternity past. He became human when he was born of Mary. But this is another essential truth that we must believe that Jesus Christ is human, that he came in human flesh. Turn to chapter 4 and verse 2. John makes this very clear to us. If you want to know that you believe him, you have to believe that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. Chapter 4, verse 2. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Now John had to ward off these false teachers who were getting in among these, uh, these churches in Asia Minor. He had to tell them, listen, you've got to be careful because what they are saying is not true. And if you remember from last week, we said that, that they were trying to say that Jesus Christ was not really human. He only appeared to be. You couldn't actually, you could see him. It kind of looked like he was human, but he wasn't really human. In fact, they say that, that Christ, these, these offenders or the, these opposers, these opposition to the truth, they said G, that, that Christ, God, came down to the earth at baptism, at Jesus' baptism, and joined the man who was a carpenter, Jesus Christ. And he joined him, and then at the end of his life, when Jesus died, Christ, God the Son, departed from this man, Jesus and John says, no, 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 no. You have to believe that Jesus Christ came in human flesh. Why? Why is it so important that Jesus Christ came in human flesh? There's a couple reasons. One, if he did not come in human flesh, the scriptures are not true. Because the scriptures are clear that Jesus Christ did come in human flesh, John 1.14. And not only that, we as humans, needed someone to come into our race. It couldn't be a spirit, because spirits can't die. It had to be a human. And that is why Jesus Christ came. And when we dismiss Jesus Christ as being human and say, oh, you know what, that doesn't seem like it's that big of a deal. Let's just get rid of that doctrine. I mean, they do have a point. It doesn't really make sense that a human and divine could, could coexist. It doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. But we can't do that because the scriptures are clear that Jesus Christ was human and that we needed his human body to die on our behalf so that we could be saved. He was our per perfect sacrifice. And so not only should we believe that Jesus Christ is eternal and that he was human or is human, he now is human eternally, but we also need to believe in order to understand and believe the gospel, that Jesus Christ is our salvation. Look at chapter 2 and verse 1. Jesus Christ is our salvation. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. The propitiation there is basically Jesus satisfied the wrath of God on our behalf. We 
deserved his wrath, didn't we? We deserved it because of our sin. And Jesus took that wrath that we deserve and he put it on his account. He took it on himself to the point where God turned his back on him because he could not look at Jesus Christ and the sin that he was bearing. So Jesus Christ is God. He is human. And he is our salvation. That is who Jesus Christ is. That is one essential to understanding the gospel. Next, we need to understand what Jesus offered. What did Jesus say about himself? By the way, before we, we go there, I want to take you back first to, to verse 1. What was from the beginning, what we have heard and what we have seen with our eyes, what we looked at and what our hands have touched concerning the word of life. You see what John's doing here? It wasn't just that I saw him, okay? These offenders are saying, no, he wasn't really human. I actually touched him. He's real. He's alive. He's human. So that's one of the ways in which John shows that he indeed was human. Now, the second thing is what Jesus offers. What does Jesus offer? He is called here the word of life. Look at the end of verse 1. What, what, uh, and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Jesus is called the word of life. This has to do with a direct revelation from God. Now, you know that God reveals himself in several different ways, right? There's two main ways in which God reveals himself to his people. The first is through general revelation. General revelation. And this is how God shows that he is real to every single person on this earth. So when people say, there is no God, they don't really believe that. The scriptures say that they know him. They know that he is alive, that he is creator. They understand that. But they're trying to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Romans chapter 1. They, they even deceive themselves that, you know what? No, I don't know him. So God reveals himself to every single person, believer and unbeliever. And he does that in one of three ways. Through his creation, we can look out at the things that God has created. We can look at, out at other humans and realize that there had to be a creator. God puts that within our hearts. It's built into our, our uh, minds and our hearts. We understand this truth, right? No one had to explain to us we don't have in the book of Genesis God saying, okay, this is why I exist, and let me tell you about, um, about all these great things. No, it starts, in the beginning, God. It assumes that he exists, doesn't it? Why? Because everybody knows. God has woven it into their hearts. So the first way is through creation. Secondly, through his providence, how God works out his, all the situations in life for his own ends, for his own purpose. And then thirdly, through the human conscience. You ever wonder why people have this desire to do what is right? Now, when I say that, unbelievers can't do anything right before God. They can do some things that are good, but they always do it with the wrong motive, don't they? They're not trying to please God, so it's sin in whatever they do. But do you ever wonder why they even have that desire to do what is right? Do they have this idea that, you know what? Murder is wrong. I understand that. It should not be that a person kills another person. Why is that? It's because they have a conscience. And God has built within them this idea of right and wrong. And that is one of the ways in which we are like God. 
So the first way that God reveals himself is generally. This is to all people, and it's general. No one can get saved through this. Okay? They have to hear the word. Romans chapter 10 says, How can they call on him in whom they have not heard? Speaking of Jesus Christ. So it's not enough to save, but it is enough to condemn. They knew that there was a God, and they rejected him. Second way that God reveals himself to us is special, is through special revelation. And there's several ways that he does this. One is through direct revelation. We see this throughout the Old Testament where God is revealing himself through the prophets, the direct word of God, through visions, through um, theophanies, basically God revealing himself to them in the form of what looked like a human or a burning bush, where God appeared to people. This is what I would call direct revelation. He not only reveals himself that way, but he also reveals himself through mighty acts. The parting of the Red Sea. Right? The walls falling down at Jericho. All these great miracles of the Old Testament. I would call these mighty acts. This is also special. It's against the laws of nature in many cases. That's what miracles are. They're against the laws of nature. Thirdly, God reveals himself through his word. Not only through the prophets who had spoken before time, but also through the writers of Scripture. And so we have his word. This is special revelation. And when you have special revelation, you can now be saved. When you have the word of God, you can now be saved if you understand and believe its truth. The fourth way, I think, is the best way that God revealed himself. And that is through Jesus Christ. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. And while you're turning there, let me read for you John chapter 14 and verse 9. Jesus said to him, Have I been, talking to Philip, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? So Jesus reveals himself, or God reveals himself through the man, Jesus Christ. And so we have a one-for-one direct revelation from God. Look at Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. Jesus Christ is the exact representation of God. Before it was hard to understand who is God? Who is he? But when Jesus Christ came, we had a one-for-one representation of who God is. Revelation of who God is. And for us, although he is not here in human flesh, we have his word. And we have the recountings of his story and how he interacted with people. You want to know how God thinks? If you have seen Jesus, you have seen the Father. And so God reveals himself to us. And it's not enough for him just to reveal himself. Lots of people have been revealed the truth about God. 
But it's what he offers. He offers eternal life. Turn back to 1 John chapter 1. And at the end of verse 1, I want you to notice again how Jesus is referred. And touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And that life, we could say eternal life, was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you what? The eternal life, which was with God and was manifested to us. To us. Christ is eternal. He has no beginning and no end. And now we as believers can share in his eternality and his in infinity in that regard with regard to time. Obviously we had a beginning, but now we will not have an end. Because of Jesus Christ. We take upon ourselves the eternality of Jesus Christ. And this vital existence between Jesus Christ and the Father, we see at the end of verse 2, which was with the Father and was manifested to us, has been there from out, throughout eternity past, and now we can share in that eternal life. And this is what John is saying to us. Jesus Christ offers eternal life. So what did he do for us? Look at chapter 4 and verse 9. By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. No longer do we have to experience eternal death, eternal separation from God forever. But now we can experience eternal life where we will forever be joined with Christ. And so John gives us two aspects of the gospel here. One is what, who Jesus is and then what he did. The third aspect is not here in this portion, but I would suggest to you that it is what he demands of us. What does he require of us? And we know from the gospels that Jesus requires two things of us. When God has saved us, the first thing that will happen is this. We will repent of our sins. We will turn away from them. And the second thing that will happen is we will believe. We will have a favorable disposition toward what God has said about the truth of Scripture, about the gospel. Those are the two things that God demands of us in salvation. So I said the first question was, who who is this man? Or, or what is this gospel? What is it? Secondly, what does it result in? What does this gospel of Jesus Christ result in? And we see in verse 3 that it results in eternal life. And John calls this fellowship. At the end of verse 2 he says, And we have seen and testify, proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So I would sum up what John is saying here by saying that, that Jesus Christ is offering to you, when you have been saved, eternal life. It is eternal fellowship with God. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. John 14, 6, he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And John says that it is something that we can enjoy with fellow believers. He says, so that you too may have fellowship with us in the middle of verse 3. 
so that you too may have fellowship with us, so that you can enjoy in this eternal life with us. But that's not what it's ultimately about. Us having a good time and eternity with our friends, with our believing friends. That's not what eternal life is about, is it? And that's why at the end of the verse he says, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father. You see, we as humans cannot have any relationship with God apart from Jesus Christ. God is spirit. We are human. God is holy. We are unholy. And so we need someone to go between us and God and become our mediator, someone who can, can bridge the barrier between us and God. And that is Jesus Christ. He is both God and man eternally. And so our fellowship is not just with believers. We will enjoy that. But it's also with God the Father. And it's through His Son, Jesus Christ. What an amazing message that is to share. It is eternal life, and it is because of Jesus Christ. Now this last thing that John says in chapter 1 and verse 4 is that these things we write so that our joy may be complete. This is the idea of a continued state of joy. And when it's used in other areas of Scripture, when, when uh, John uses it in the Gospels and when Paul uses it in Philippians, it has to do with this idea of just being full of joy. It doesn't necessarily mean eternal joy, although that is a possibility. It could mean eternal life again, but just another way to say it. That our joy, when will our joy be made complete? Finally, when we are enjoying eternal life. But what John is ultimately saying is that when we are seized by the truth of the gospel, then our response will be joy. We will respond with inexpressible joy. And so the last thing that I want to look at is what do we do with this? What do we do with this gospel? The joy that we have because of the gospel should overflow from our lives. And John says in verses 2 and 3 that we should share it with others. Notice what he did. In the life that was manifested, and we have seen and testify, what do we do with it? We proclaim it to you. We don't keep it and hold it for ourselves. We proclaim it to you, the eternal life which was with the Father and manifested to us. What we have seen and we, heard, we have heard, we proclaim to you. Has the gospel changed you? Do you experience joy because of what Jesus Christ did for you? If so, then you should respond by sharing it with others. And John several times talks about his eyewitness account of Jesus' life. What we have seen, what we have heard, what we have testified. I saw all these things in person. And 60 years later, John says, You know what? It's still exciting and I still want to share it. I still want to proclaim this to you because it is the Word of God. It is the source of life. It is the Gospel. Have you ever met a person who had such a fervent belief in something that they didn't care about who knew about it? In fact, they wanted to tell everybody. You see these people at political rallies, right? Sometimes we call them fanatics. You see these people at sporting events. 
You see moms talking among other moms about the, the greatest dry cereal for their baby, right? You see these people that are just so full of what they believe that they want to make sure that everyone hears it and believes it as well because it has given them some sort of joy. And whenever you give a counter-argument to what they have said, you usually get an earful, don't you? They have all these reasons why they are right and you are wrong. Now what I'm talking about, I'm not talking about those fanatics who just, they take anything and they go with it. They just are fanatic about everything. I'm talking about people who are genuinely excited about what they believe and they've studied it out. And as a result, they share uh, their wisdom with you. You ever wonder why these people are so passionate about their particular topics? Sometimes it is because of their nature. Some people are just flamboyant. But other times, it's just because they have been gripped by that truth that they understand, whether it's politics or sports or whatever. They've been through the thick and thin. They've been through the times, these many years, when the Lions haven't won a championship They've struggled through those times, and they know what the Lions need to win. And so they'll tell you about it. But you know, when it comes to the most central issue in our lives as believers, we often, we often are shut in and don't really care whether or not anybody else knows about it. In fact... You know, if you take these people who are excited about what they believe and you put them in a container, okay, and you, they would be bouncing all over the place, making sure that they get out because they wanted everybody to know and you can't keep me contained. But you know, when, when we think about ourselves, if someone were to put us in a container where we could not share the gospel, we'd probably sit in the corner and think, you know what? Those people just don't understand. It's not that big of a deal. I don't really care if they hear it or not. So when we're faced with opposition, we just kind of sit down and give up. Because the gospel has not gripped us. And the sad part is, a lot of times we're not contained. It's like we're put in a wet paper bag. And if it wasn't easy enough to get out of a wet paper bag on our own, we have the God of eternity on our side. And we still just sit there and say, did you see that look that that lady gave me when I tried to share the gospel to her? When I tried to turn the conversation to the gospel, did you see that look she gave me? I can't handle that. I want their approval. And so we stay enclosed in this little paper bag, wet paper bag, in which we should be busting out of and saying, you must hear it. Now what I'm suggesting to you is not that you should go beating down on doors and forcing yourself into people's homes so that they must hear the gospel and you will not leave until the police take you away. That's not what I'm suggesting. Think about how you received the gospel. Did someone take you and put you up against the wall and force you to hear it, you're going to die and go to hell. Is that how you received the gospel? Did they say, you know, 
When you die, you are definitely not going to be with Jesus Christ. And so you need to be saved. And you force it into them. That's not how we receive the gospel, is it? And I don't know of any time in Scripture when that's the case. And yet that's often how, how we react to people. We put them up against the wall and we think we have to force it in them. And then once they reject it, then we're okay. We can leave them. No, we need to be persistent with them. We need to give that, them the truth in love. They need to hear it with a heart of love. Seeing the love of Jesus Christ within us. And a lot of times we just look at those situations and you say, you know what, it looks like God just closed the door on me. I'm not going to pursue that anymore. We need to get up. We need to share the gospel. People are dying all around us. And we're too worried about what people think about us, aren't we? What if Christ were worried about the difficulties that he had to share, that he had to endure on our behalf? What if he thought, you know what? A lot of these people who are going to be saved in the future, they won't even care how much I suffered, so why go through it? Why should I do that? Why bother with this salvation stuff? But Jesus did endure. Do you realize what he did for you? Has it gripped you? You were an enemy of God. That's right, God hated you. And he demanded that there be a punishment for your sin. There was nothing within you that was favorable. You say, well, I was young and I didn't do a whole lot of evil things at that time. You did enough to condemn yourself to an eternity in hell. Do you realize what God has done for you? All your righteousnesses were as filthy rags before him. And yet Jesus Christ was the offering that God gave on your behalf. It cost God his son so that you could live. Think of it. Jesus Christ humbled himself and he gave himself to these wicked people who hated him. Why should he have to endure such ridicule on that cross? So that you could live. That's why he did it. And the scriptures say that God was pleased to crush him. He was pleased to crush his own son because of your sin and because of mine. Have you seen it? Jesus Christ should not have had to have died on that tree for you. He should not have had to. It should have been you and me up there paying for our own sins. And yet instead of death, God has given us life. Do you see it? Has it gripped you? John says, See how great the love the Father has bestowed upon us that we can be called children of God. And that is what we are. And for this reason, the world should not know us because it did not know Him. And sadly... Too often, 
we are afraid to share the gospel with others because it hasn't penetrated us. We haven't thought about what God has done on our behalf. We dismiss it. We think, you know, it's not that big of a deal. It's over. God did it. It's done. I'm going to heaven. I don't have to worry about it anymore. But the gospel should be at the center of our lives. Everything that we do should be surrounded around the gospel and what Christ did for us. And when we share it with others, we won't care what people think. When it has really gripped us, we won't care what they think. I'm not asking you to become a fanatic who burns down buildings or takes part in religious rallies or starts a weblog says why my Christian baby is more healthy than your pagan one. Okay? I'm not asking for you to force your way into someone's life whom you don't know. I'm just asking you to do what John has asked of us. And we think about the gospel. Think about what it did to you. Where were you? What were you like before you were saved? You were an enemy. And where are you now? You have received eternal life. You say, Pastor, I don't know if I can share these truths with others with, with other people. I'm really untrained when it comes to the gospel. I can't say it as clearly as you can. Turn to Acts chapter 4. And we'll be done. I'll try to make a few more comments. Acts chapter 4. I want to show you a series of verses to show us how we can give this truth of the gospel to others. Because I admit, it is difficult at times. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that it's easy. But look at Acts chapter 4 and verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this man name, this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation and no one else. And there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men whereby we must be saved. saved. Look down to verse 19. But Peter and John answered and said, after they received some opposition, and said, you need to stop giving the gospel. Verse 19. But Peter and John answered and said, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. And then verse 29. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservant may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. How do we have boldness to give this message? Peter and John say, judge for you whether it's right or not for us to, to, to give this message. But I tell you, for me, they say, for us, 
We can't stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. You want motivation? Or you want to know how you can give the gospel to them? Tell them what Christ has done in your life. Tell them. That is the simplistic idea, the simplistic strategy that God has given to us. Tell them about what God did for you. You say, well, I'm not really that motivated. Where do I get motivation? What if I don't feel like it? Well, I would suggest to you that you need to go to the gospel and read about what Jesus Christ did for you. Go to Isaiah chapter 53 and see how he was bruised for your transgressions. In Psalm chapter 22, read through those, meditate on them. Think about what Christ did on your behalf. If that doesn't grip you, go to the epistles. Romans chapter 1 through 11 talks about our former condition, how we were an enemy of God. Ephesians chapter 2 easily, in a few verses, tells us that we were enemies of God. But God, with his love, loved us and sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to be the sacrifice for our sins. Get a sense of what you looked like before you were saved, and then get a sense of what you look like now. Notice the contrast. Notice what God has done for you. And when you do, you will sing with indescribable joy the great song, Man of Sorrows. What a name. For the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah! What a Savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless we. Spotless Lamb of God was He and full atonement. Can it be? Hallelujah. What a Savior. Lifted up was He to die. It is finished was His cry. And now in heaven exalted high. Hallelujah. What a Savior. And when He comes, our glorious King, all His ransomed home to bring, and then anew this song we'll sing. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Think about what Christ has done for you. Let's bow together for prayer. Lord, it is with shame that we bow our heads. We recognize our, worth, our worthlessness before you, that we deserved nothing but your wrath. But Jesus Christ sent, was sent on our behalf so that he could make atonement for our sins, not for our sins only, but also for the whole world. And Lord, it is also a shame that we bow because we have been
We have been so unwilling to share that great truth to the people who are dying around us. And we pray that you would renew our joy in the gospel so that we can be energized to do your service, to share it with others. Things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and grace. So, Lord, we pray now that you would help us not to just forget what we have heard tonight, but that we would go out and allow the power of the gospel to be shared with those around us. Pray that our lives would be evidence of the truth that has changed us. Help us not to dabble in things of this world, but to spend our time and our focus understanding and enjoying and believing the gospel of Jesus Christ. For it is in his name that we pray. Amen.